Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And this is... Oeuvre. Do you say oeuvre or I say I, busters? Do, no, we do You it. say oeuvre. I, I say, say busters. Oeuvre. Busters. Oeuvre. Busters. Yay! We survived another introduction. I'd like, I'd like to, to get you. you. I'm singing. It's Sorry. Like I sing on this show. I thought it was harmonizing. I'd like to you were get not. You were not. Get you. on by myself. Alone. Alone. That's at the uh, end of this amazing, amazing film. All right, let's slow down with the amazing, amazing. So, uh, um, what film are we talking about, George? So we're talking about. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. It's been a while. Yet another episode. Well, um, not not for them, really. Not really for you guys, <laughs> but for us. We haven't done this in a while. But who cares? What movie are we talking about? So we're continuing, obviously, our deep dive, and we're nearing the end. I know of it's our sad. Philip Seymour Hoffman deep dive. Uh, we are talking about 2012's The Master, directed written by, and written, written, directed, and directed by Peter. Paul Thomas Anderson. Correct. Starring, starring of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Joaquin Phoenix. We forgot how to do this. Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Ra- Ram- Rami Malek, Rami Malek. Laura Dern. I totally forgot that Rami Malek was in um, this. Amber Childers. Don't know any that's, other that's other than them. I'm like and Kevin uh, Conroy. Yeah, is Kevin Conroy the guy who was in Breaking Bad? No, Kevin Conroy is the guy who um, played a very prominent role in There Will Be Blood as Daniel Plainview's fake brother. Ah, yeah, and we'll and be talking a little bit about There Will Be Blood because the there's a lot of interesting connections. Why don't? Why do you keep fucking interrupting me? Sorry. Um, it's been a while. So, George, I thought we were you, just harmonizing. Could you briefly summarize The Master? No, I really can't, but I'll try. Oh, it's very easy. To, so, it's a very easy movie to summarize. You think so? Yes. So Joaquin Phoenix plays Freddie Quell who is a kind of lost soul post-World War II. Shell-shocked. Shell-shocked, depressed, but for a lot of reasons, actually, who kind of just kind of wanders the world, um, making um, his own kind of like toxic drinks. Yes. <laughs> his a, own booze, his like own alcohol, his own hooch. Of poisonous booze. Co- correct. Booze. Um, he basically gets into like a whole bunch of trouble. He might accidentally have killed somebody. And lo and behold, he eventually runs into Felicity Mohoffin's character, who is... Lancaster so Dodd, Dodd, who is a kind of L. Ron Hubbard type messianic figure. And Joaquin Phoenix kind of gets involved with him and his group, which is Co called run the... run by the, the Cause. The Cause. It's called The Cause. It's run by... Himself and his wife. Peggy. Peggy Dodd. Peggy Dodd's a great name. It is a great name. As played by... Amy Adams. Amy Adams. And it's basically just about their really intense relationship. Well, being about a lot of other things. And also about well. being a lot of... A lot of of other things as well too um, yeah but it I, also takes like a really long time for him actually which is great i mean like the build-up to him actually like meeting philip seymour hoffman it's probably about 25 minutes is amazing maybe maybe a little longer. um uh, i think it's worth noting that um the film is kind of about his s- development over the course of the film post um world war ii and noting that the film frequently cuts back to a beach scene. Yeah, which is very important. Very important, um, where it feels as though he's been marooned with a group of soldiers. Yeah. Um, but also, I think that there might be a, a second beach scene um, that is pla- is being played against this that is taking place at a different time in the narrative. And oh, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, By the way, can we also just quickly talk about how you were wrong about this film? 
just so we can get this so, on the record. Um, let's talk a little bit. About, let's talk about a little bit about Paul Thomas Anderson. In general. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, my first Paul Thomas Anderson movie was Boogie Nights. A good one. Um, I think I that was my first one too. I was too. pretty obsessed with it. And then I saw Magnolia the night it opened at the Independence Mall in Kingston, Massachusetts with some friends who were all like, what is this three? I was 18 when it came out. Right. It was like my first, it was my first legal R-rated movie, I think. Wow. Or maybe. First legal, you mean that you were of age? Yes, of course. Yeah. No. Like, yeah. I was like, first, like, like, I like everybody's like, been going to like R first, movies when they were like 14, 15. Like first R-rated movie that I could, yeah, that I could see like, like I could buy a ticket. What for was the first show. R-rated movie you saw in the theater? Oh my God. I saw a million R-rated movies in the theater. With R- I said the first one. Um, I don't remember. Mine, I think, was Interview with the Vampire. Oh, wow. That just celebrated its like 50th anniversary. It's 50th. <laughs> um, um, so, and then I, I'm and old. Then I, I'm very old. I'm so old. That's why Liam just keeps saying, okay, boomer. The last time we recorded, okay, boomer was not uh, a thing. And is, now it this is. This is what the culture is now. Um, and the last time we recorded, Paul Thomas Anderson hadn't announced a new movie, but that does, that's secondary. Um, I really got into Magnolia. I was obsessed with it. I bought the screenplay. I went back. I said this on the show before. I watched Heart Eight after school, like for months at a time. I was totally obsessed with it. Um, and then you know there was sort of like kind of radio silence. I guess he did Punch Truck Love, which I liked a lot, but didn't mm-hmm. didn't blow my mind. And then There Will Be Blood is the I saw it the day after I moved back to the country. Oh. Um, from Prague, same, right? Yeah, in the same Independence Mall, and I it ended, and I and uh, I was the there was one other person in the movie theater, and I just sat and watched it again. Yeah, it blew my <laughs> mind. I think it's uh, I think of like a lot of people, I think it's an amazing that's an cinematic. That's a great American film to return to as it well. Is, it is, I think, the great American film. Yeah, um, I I know it's new, but it, it feels that way. So I was not. Um, I was very, 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 very excited about the master, and I saw it twice. In the theater when it came out and i fell asleep both times and i thought it was shit yeah i thought it was like shit so what changed your mind this time around let's get there what do you think about mm-hmm. it or what's your history so i remember watching Paul it Thomas anderson Ooh, my history i mean I, kind of a little bit like yours yeah. so boogie nights was the first thing i've seen still haven't seen heart eights depressing it's um, on amazon it's, it's on depressing it's depressing it's depressing it's a great movie but i made my way through the rest of the uber pretty much chronologically i don't remember seeing like Magnolian Theater, oh. but I did see it. Oh, you liked movies very soon. I just I'm just a poser. Very soon thereafter, um, I remember loving it, but I only saw it once. I want to go back. Remember liking Punch Drunk Love, not totally being blown away by it, but yeah, so like There Will Be Blood was a revelation, and it was one of those films yeah, where the first time I saw it, I was like, this is fucking amazing, and that I- last scene. Just I remember wa- watching it and just like my jaw dropped. I was like, holy shit. I think I was like pretty sure it was like a total masterpiece <clears throat> the first time I saw it. And I don't really generally feel that way. It felt, felt that way to that me. I felt that way about that. I felt that way about a few things. I felt that way about that. I felt that way about um, uh, this film Once Upon a Time of Anatolia. Once Upon oh, a Time yeah, of yeah, Anatolia yeah. that it ended. And I was like, that's a, like a totally I'm still fucking trying to find the wild pear tree to see it again. Oh, fuck off. Um, <laughs> and um, So good. And uh, a few other things, but I, I really think that. Um, so I also really loved Inherent Vice as well. I do not like it, but I'm I, I so I've struggled with anything with Paul Thomas Anderson, anything post there will be there blood. Will be blood. I really didn't like the master. Was it only the t- oh yeah, it's the I master? Saw, I also saw I saw Inherent Vice with my wife, who is like this movie is ridiculous. Like this mm-hmm. is like grown man garbage. <laughs> Um, and then, um, and then I, we saw actually the first movie I went to an, uh, an Alamo all age screening of the mm-hmm. fan, a phantom threat with my daughter. So the first movie I saw <laughs> in the movies was with my sleeping eight months. I think Inherent Vice is a lot better than, or I, at least I enjoyed it more, I should say, than Phantom Thread. Although Phantom Thread also felt very much like a corrective to me. Interesting. Um, in terms of its gender politics. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's a lot to be said about so in a, in a weird so these films these films are very masculinist. They're very much about like men, with like a capital M. I don't know about that. Oh, I think I think so. Yeah, no, yeah. I think they are too. Yeah. And I think even it's, like this film is really interesting, obviously too, because like Amy Adams does play a pivotal role and there is I think She's maybe, the master. Well, I mean that's the thing, right? We've had this kind of conversation about whether or not she is in fact like the master, like the person behind the the screen, so to speak. Because there are also implications, right, that she's like the one who is running if, the show. Yeah, or if not even running the show, maybe perhaps even writing some of the the stuff. Because there's that one interesting scene where they're in the hotel room and she's speaking and, and he's, he's typing, typing away. Yeah, and he's writing down what she's saying. Yeah, and the implication is that he's writing down what she's saying. You can saying. also interpret it as um, 
him writing while she's complaining. Like it's a very open experience. Correct. So I, I would say to that point, um, rewatching this film now, uh, what is it? It's eight years on. It came out. No, uh, 2012, 2012, which so is, it feels like it's so much older than that. And um, I think that has was, a lot to do with how it was shot in 65. I was but. really, um, pretty, pretty blown away by it this time. And I think, the things that I that didn't click for me the first time clicked the, this time. I think part of the reason I, I liked it, I don't think it's there'll be blood, but I also think that why well, went into the movie wanting something that was as bold and kind of as like, like, I mean, there'll be blood is such a great American movie. Cause yeah. It's kind of about the collision between um, religion and capitalism. It is. Way. Yeah. I mean like, but it's also like a really good character study, oh, it's amazing. Um, but it's a character study that substitutes like that, that creates these really clearly defined characters who represent something mm-hmm. about like an oppositional, oppositional forces in America and actually how they're actually like intertwined. Inter- yeah. It's related. Yeah. Um, and I think this movie um, has something similar to that, but it's also a much more intimate, nuanced, quiet, subtle character piece. I think every scene of this movie can be interpreted a couple different ways. Right. Um, hmm. And that, I think that that, I think that I, I was more in tune with its subtlety this time yeah. than I was the first time. And I think that that right off the gate, um, the movie opens with a montage of him cutting up coconuts and then it cuts to the men having built this like woman yeah, the sand woman. The sand woman that he uh, inappropriately humps for uh-huh. far too long. Yeah, yeah. It's really awkward. And he then fingers. And then it cuts to him masturbating. Mm-hmm. In the sand. In the sand, and I, yeah. That's, the, that's the, surf. the moment of the movie where I'm like, is this a different beach sequence? Because it looks different. He's he's um, he's wearing a bathing suit, I think. Or like shorts. Or shorts that yeah. are different. And a group of people walk by and I swear it's women in bathing suits and it's been clear up to this point that there are no... Fuck, I gotta go back and see it that. Looks, it I, looks, I, I assume it was the same. I, 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 I could be totally wrong and I could be projecting. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't like spend a bunch of time analyzing, but I, these like, a few people walk by. First of all, you don't see anyone else's face. Yeah. And I wonder if whether it is it is supposed to be a different time. I think it's, interpre- it's you could interpret that shot mm-hmm. as being that because the film keeps cutting back to this beach scene kind of in a weird way how the movie Tree of Life does it with the Sean Penn wandering uh. around bullshit <laughs> that clouds the, the point of that movie. But Sean Penn's um, wandering around and he's like, where's that sea oh, sand woman? Oh, masturbating man, why do you wrestle with me? Or whatever the fuck line is. The, tal- um, the Malika interior monologue. But I, I just found it to be a lot more, the, the mystery of it worked a lot better for me this time. But I also think that like, it's actually quite a simple movie. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that it's about men that are in love with each other. Right. And, and, um, and the symbolism, homoerotic. totally homoerotic. But going back also to compare a little bit to There Will Be Blood, it's interesting to think about how this film is kind of, it's about the search for meaning. It's about the search for faith in a way that like There Will Be Blood is not. Like, and there will be blood, those people are totally, totally convinced, and they're believers, right? So they're either believers in capitalism, or they're even belie- they're either believers in, like, Christianity. Or they're believers, Ooh. like people that believe in Justin Bieber. Oh, explain. I can't. Do you follow God on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, do you know, like, he only follows Justin Bieber? I just think that's such a great Is joke. Really yeah, great? he only follows one person, and it's that's Justin really Bieber. Funny. I mean, sure. But it's interesting to think about, like, that film, There Will Be Blood, as, like, as an indictment on how corrosive belief can be. Mm -hmm. and about what it does to people. And it's interesting to think about like this film that these figures are kind of like, you know, atheistic might be too strong of a word, but there's always like the, there's the idea, right? That like Philip Seymour Hoffman himself doesn't buy into his own bullshit and that he does occasionally believe or like he might in fact be like a total charlatan and realizes it. And he is often, because when he's challenged about it, he like completely loses his shit. I also think that this, this film and I haven't seen Inherent Vice in a long time, but there feels to, that there's something, tr- not they're not a trilogy, but definitely these two films are a, uh, mm-hmm. what, what's the term for two? Like, the, I don't know. A dyad? A dyad <laughs> of, of like American charlatanism. Because huh. Daniel Plainview in There'll Be Blood is sort of this like outwardly, con- like sort of figure who, is projecting like success and all this stuff, but is made on like in the, the, the image of the self-made man is like interesting, but he's also like the opening sequence where he like makes himself yeah. such, like a powerful, like iconic American image. But like he pretends to have a son. It's not his son. He's not a family man. Mm-hmm. He's 
taken a child from a guy who dies on an oil rig and, and treats him as though he is his son. Yeah, the bastard in the basket, perhaps. Oh, you're a bastard in <laughs> a basket. But he, it's kind of that idea of like the the fact that he uses that as a way to project an image right. of sanity and stability when in like the capitalism is an inherently unstable, chaotic, um, power-driven thing. Yeah, yeah. And so to juxtapose that against Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lancaster Dodd as a guy who's pretending to be something in order to create a life, a very comfortable, mm-hmm. globe-trotting life. Um, and I, I will talk about Phil Hoffman, but I think the performance is filled with mystery and it's incredible. It's incredible, yeah. But going back to the Sandwoman, um, what do you make of it as an image because it comes back often the final shot of the movie is him laying down next to her yeah and you know the name of the song that's playing no it's called change partners oh it's a a song about dancing yeah um but there's also like the sand woman also becomes like the real woman of the end when manchester that he has yeah that he has sex with right so uh, i don't know what i make of it what do you make of it well, I mean, so the, initially when I saw this film, I was kind of the one thing that did annoy me about it was this kind of sense that like that the female body becomes like a symbol of transcendence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me felt kind of like very cheap and very like traditionally masculinous and all like the wrong ways yes. of like, I will find transcendence through like a woman's body. Right. And that the ending for me is a little cheapened by that because it, so again, like he humps at the very beginning. You see him like humping the sand woman and he's obviously kind of like possessed with this like erotomania. Mm-hmm. Well, he um, does the whole movie. There's a sequence and he imagines all the women are naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the song. The, um, I'll go a roaming, a roaming, yeah. a roaming. So and it's weird. a very uncanny and weird scene. Yes. And then there's also that other the, Kubrickian scene. Oh, it is a Kubrickian scene. Yeah. A lot like Kubrick. And then there's that other scene like earlier where he's like trying to do the processing and he has the headphones on and he writes down like, do you want to fuck? And he hands over the note to like yeah. this woman. Um, so yes. he is, he's like a, yeah, he's kind of like a, I mean, obviously it has a lot to do with like the fact that he's damaged and the fact that he's looking for not just like affection, but something right to like hold on to. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, again, his erotomania has, it's substantial. It's not just fake. It's not just cheap, but I thought like, oh, I wouldn't have ended the film on that note because it does suggest again, this kind of like escape or release that, I mean, okay. So that actually the last shot is also a little bit, um, or the last scene is a little bit kind of complex because he's also drunk again mm. so he hasn't like escaped from his alcoholism yeah exactly and he tries to process her right processing is the is a process by which people are meant to reveal themselves yeah what's it called in scientology um <laughs> the e-meter or the stress test or something, test or something. Like yeah but, um the, so that was the story. So the first time I saw this film, yeah. I was like, oh, that's a little annoying. But now that I saw it again and I thought about that last scene and the complexity of it, I was like, okay, so maybe actually it's it's far more complex right. than I was making it out to be. You know, this brings up a couple things that I want to talk about. The first is um, I tweeted earlier today. I'm going to talk about my tweets. I think I spent a lot of years being wrong about the master, to which this guy, George Fragopoulos, responded correct. Which really I hate really it smart when you guy. Say your tweet that correct. Guy's, that guy's, it's like very, it's very condescending. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But, um, that's, is that why you didn't like it? I'm going to like my own tweet right now. Um, you should. <laughs> Um, Emily Best, who is a, a friend of mine and a, and a, and a kick-ass um, CEO of a company called um, Seed and Spark that does amazing uh, film stuff, responded, you mean now you know it's a terrible movie? <laughs> to which I responded, I felt that way, now I like it. And then she said this, which I thought was very interesting. And uh, Emily, I in, please, in, I, I did this on Twitter, but I invite, I don't know if you listen, but I invite you to please send in a, vo- a voicemail um, about this tweet because... Um, you said in response to my tweet, it's like two hours for a lonely man to have sex, which I think is a pretty fair criticism, um, not only of this movie, but of all of Paul Thomas Anderson's work, especially maybe maybe Phantom Thread is, is, a, is, is a corrective, as you say, mm-hmm. but there's times when I think he reaches for like a profundity but really all his movies can sometimes come back to is lonely men. And I think that like, I'm not saying that they're not good films, but like, I, I feel like at the risk of like being overly simplistic about gender, a lot of very, very smart women in my life have been like, that guy's movies are bullshit. Yeah. And I think because similar to the Coen brothers, he doesn't really engage with 
thematic questions around women in a way that is substantial. And I yeah. think that they really are bro fests. And I think that in some ways that, that's discouraging that we've all, he's a really talented filmmaker and his career has gone in a very different direction yeah. than I thought it would, but which is exciting. But I think it's empty to a lot of people. And I, th I think it'd be good if I wish we had a female perspective in the room with us right now. Um, because I think there's, there's, there's something to be challenged in his films. No, totally. And I think the like, okay, so this is definitely a bro fest, even though Amy Adams, when she's on the screen and the work she kind of does helps, I think, to kind of like deflate that a little bit. Do you think there's a little bit of her being like a nag, though? Like a little a, bit. Yeah. 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 But I also think there's the thing I th the, the thing also about like the broiness is that it's not it's not a broiness that is uh, not problematized. And okay, tell me more about that. Well, these men, like, you can't watch this film and be like, these these are the types of dudes, like, I want to be. Like, they are, like, wrecked human beings. They are, mm. like, totally fucked up. And this, like... I agree. Yeah, they're just... They're self-aware. They're completely, utterly damaged. And I think what's interesting about them, like, if you want to think about, like, say, like, the gender politics and, like, what's redeeming, let's say, about, like, this film... It could ver it's like very much like a film. You could argue that it's it's a film about these two men that want to be in love with one another, but they can't mm -hmm. because of compulsory heterosexuality. That society like it tells them that they have to not be in love in the ways in which they want to be in love with one another, and they have to in certain ways like lead these otherwise somewhat conventional at least heterosexual yeah or heteronormative life. And the movie handles that interestingly in the way that it there's a scene where Amy Adams gets Phil Hoffman to. Um, agree to not drink anymore while jerking him off. Yeah. And it's a power move. It's a power play, and it's 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 an interesting scene. And she also says something like, "You can like sleep around too." I don't care what you. Yeah, yeah exactly. just I don't want to find out. And there's also a recurring um, sort of. Sometimes it's a flashback, but another case, it's part of the narrative where Freddie Quell returns to Lynn, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, what? to visit his high school sweetheart. Um, who eventually marries somebody and then becomes Doris Day, which is like one of the oh, just one of the hilarious like. And that scene's really beautiful. It is. Um, so it's a movie sort of about compulsory heterosexuality, mm -hmm. um, set against sort of like this origin story of a cult. Yes. And I think that one thing that I think is really ambitious, but also, uh, I feel like sometimes. The hetero, the hetero, compulsory heteronormativity angle mm -hmm. is in conflict with the cult stuff because it's just so much stuff in the movie. Like, I don't know. I, I Maybe that makes the film richer, like it has a richer sort of tapestry. But yeah. I don't think it, I don't know. There's something in the cult stuff that doesn't quite get there for me. And I wonder if it has to do with the fact that it's, so it's been so overhyped as an L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Thing when I don't. It's not. It's, I think yeah. that that's actually really. It's just like a frame. It's like a very um, general, yes. like yeah, like frame in which that he can um, situate all of these ideas right. within it. But I think, like again, like that's also the, I think the critique. I think it's okay. These aren't like even like an inherent vice, like the relationship, for example, between Phoenix and Brolin and inherent vice. <laughs> Is again, it's like really like complex, convoluted, politically interesting mm -hmm. um, relationship. I need to. I'm gonna actually rewatch that. Film yeah. This weekend well, because I forgot. Like, I think Brolin's like either an FBI agent or a, cop. a cop. So, and obviously, like Joaquin Phoenix is this like private eye in like the outskirts of society. Kind of a private eye. Kind of a private counterculture, eye. sort of a hangover of the counterculture. Yeah. An interesting movie to look at it in comparison to Husbands. So I think I think Emily is right in that tweet that yes, this film, like I was saying, is totally just about totally just a man about, getting his rocks off yeah this kind of sense like it leads to this ending of this like supposed let's say moment of like sexual transcendence mm -hmm. but again on second viewing that's a really complicated moment because again he's drunk he's trying to process her and it, the suggestion seems to be that he has not escaped um the idea of searching for a master and this is and this is why the film is like so much about belief and what the great thing, one of the... And like, post-trauma. And about post-trauma, right? But the thing also that Philip Seymour Hoffman says to him right before they leave, right before he sings to him, right? He says it's like something beautiful. He's like, if you could go out there and, and live a life without serving a master, then you will do something that nobody has ever done before. And I felt like that, that's like the thesis of the film. So who is the master? Who is Phil Hoffman's master? 
I mean, well, it's the thing. Is Phil Hoffman's master Amy Adams? Or is, or is Phil Hoffman's ma- like master the cause? Dodd's the cult is yeah. the cause. Is it his... Is it his own hubris? Is it the fact that he's created a... a it's all of this thing. Yeah. It might even be Joaquin Phoenix. Oh. Oh, deep. But I love just like the idea... So the other thing also that I was thinking about is like, so again, historically speaking, what is this film about? Well, clearly it's about 9-11. We all know that, so I'm not going to go there. But also like... It's about boobs. It's about it's about uh, sand boobs. Sand boobs. It's about... What a bro. It's passion. about, let's say, the loss of meaning post-World War II. Of course. And that's yeah. almost painfully obvious. Yeah. But then also I was thinking... It was it's like almost boringly obvious. 2012, I was thinking like, well, holy shit. Like, isn't this also to some degree a reflection on, let's say, like millennial culture? And Get the fuck out. What are you doing? Why not? About? It's post-2008. Po- like, the crash. It's there. He's like... He's, he's been trying to make this movie for a long time. Right. Uh, that's why it's also about 9-11 but i'm trying to think about like the sense of like you have this young man who's in this like landscape bereft of meaning and he's trying to just find anything to hold on to so it's very much like about faith but i, I was like totally like why can't you make the argument that it's also very much about you could you could well there's yeah. something universal and i mean it's a it's a movie about america i think to, to some mm-hmm. extent and like open space and and you see him working these shitty jobs or this one shitty job in particular well, he's a photographer at one point in a store, which is like a really beautiful, great sequence, and um, and then he he sort of works on a on a farm cutting cabbage yeah. or something. And and that's where he accidentally poisons this older man. The, the yeah, the, there's a little bit of like interesting racial politics. Yeah, in but it's also too. great, right? Because right before that guy like almost dies, or maybe does die, he says, "You remind me of my father." Yeah, and then he gets they drink together. And the guy drinks too much. Yeah, and he passes out, and we don't know if he survives or not. And he runs away. But this is another great like thing too, right? To think about his kind of his prowess with the hooch as a kind of almost like artistic expression right. of his identity. And the same thing also with like the mixing of chemicals to like process film. So he does have like this kind of like artistic, let's say, aesthetic view of life. But with like obviously the making of the hooch, it turns into this like really poisonous and destructive. Yeah, because Philip Seymour Hoffman initially like keeps him on. Because he's like, I've tasted your potion. It's amazing. Yes. I need you to make more of that for me. Right. And I and I mean, I think that the film implies that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character as a Lancaster Dot has a drinking problem. Totally. Yeah. They're both addicted. Yes. And I think that I think that you're right. I think the movie um, there's a tension between its critique of masculinity and its celebration celebration of it. And I think that there's something interesting about that. But I also think that like there's plenty of things that do that. Maybe, um, so it, 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 I do feel like in some ways I can, I can see how, again, not to be like overly simplistic about it. It's like, it's not like every man loves this movie and every woman's like, fuck this movie. But I think that like, there, 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 even though that I think there's more to it, I remember feeling distinctly at the end of the movie, the first time I saw it, so fucking what? Mm -hmm. Like, so what? Who cares? And I, I think that like, also, I don't think, exceptional craft which this film has unbelievable craft is a is a a substitute for meaning and i think that part of the Mm. problem is that like there's a lot of people that will watch this film and watch any of his films and talk about the craft and all these things and like again the craft is impeccable like there's no denying that in my mind but does it really mean anything like is it what's the term white elephant art Oh, for like, uh, um, there's like termite art and I forget. It's, it's like kind of like something that is like sumptuous and yeah, I yeah, yeah. People feel that way about Blade Runner 2049 as well. It's like, oh, what an they're totally movie. wrong. I think they might be, but I also sometimes wonder if like we're all sort of enabled by the culture to think that this thing, because it's beautiful and slow moving and well acted has anything to say that's meaningful. And, and I, and I welcome the challenge that this movie has nothing to say. Yeah. Because I think we've all really need to reassure ourselves that Paul Thomas Anderson really has something to say. And I think I'm not saying he doesn't, but I think that like, there's a really strong argument for this movie, really not amounting to anything, especially in the final Oof. shot when you're repeti- when you're watching, not amount. Okay. I'm being yeah. dramatic for the sake <laughs> of the show, but like, there's something a little frustrating about the final shot of the movie. Yeah, is, yeah, is, totally. Is it is it, yeah. is it a is it an artistic frustration or is it a the movie doesn't necessarily say anything profound? Yeah, I think frustration. I think it does. does yes, but I think it does say something profound. But what yes, does it say? 
Well, for, hold on. I do think, though, I agree with hold you on. that it should have probably ended. Don't get mad. It should, I'm just fucking furious. I'm fucking furious. So mad. I just oh, love that. I, I love that scene with like, fuck you, fuck you, oh, fuck so you. Good. That's so good. <laughs> He's like, you're full of shit. Fuck yeah, you. That's a good scene. It's a great scene. Yeah. But also, we, we, I mean, we have to also talk about like Phoenix's like physical let's acting in this. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Right. Holy shit. The film should have ended with him singing to him and him like walking away. It should have ended there. The scene with oh, the woman in Manchester is kind of like bullshit. I, I felt like not, not. So a better movie if it ends there. I, I felt that way. Yeah. But I no, I mean, I think like. I think this film's about like the, the search for like faith and meaning. And I think that in and of itself clearly can be a very general and cliched um, aesthetic device or aesthetic framing device. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's a lot to be said about these characters, about their beliefs, about their interactions that suggests that it is profound or at least the kind of the, this, this search for meaning and the search for like faith is presented in a very kind of profound, meaningful way. And yeah, the sumptuousness of it is totally fucking gripping. I mean, I, I just took this, like I, I tweeted out like one shot from it or a couple, uh, like yesterday or something while I was watching it. And it wasn't until after I sent out that tweet and I looked at the picture that like, I was like this shot and it's one of the obviously countless shots in the film like looked so much like a painting, like with the palette and the colors and its vibrancy. And I think obviously a lot of that has to do with a shot on, on film and it comes across. Yeah, 65 millimeter. And it comes across and it was like, and I think it's okay though. So this, like you said earlier about like the distinction between like craft and profundity and I think a lot of times, like it's, I'm in a state, and a lot of times I think it's okay to just kind of be taken in by something that's beautiful. Yeah. And if it's not superficial, and I don't think this is like superficial, like I do think like this film is trying to say something. I mean, like form without content is fascism. So, form without, yeah, but I don't think this, you know. No, I know. Um, because the other thing also, if you don't think, at me, Peter yeah, Rinaldi. Think about also, no, Peter, please do it. <laughs> Peter, you still need to respond to my. Um, Tweet about Parasite. And t- um, yeah. The other, other movie that has a form and content problem. The other that's thing that's right. interesting to think about this film right. is like its critique of war. Like you often, I kind think, of. you often don't, kind th- of. you often don't think about, let's say, any sort of negative views of like World War II, like the just war. And there's that one scene, which I totally forgot about. We were killing Nazis. Yeah, no, no. But it, also the fact that like a lot of people came back totally oh, sure, fucked sure, up. Sure, no, no, I mean, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. It, this is an inglorious I mean, it's bastard. It's definitely right? not a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> it's right, exactly. Did you like, do some coke? George keeps rubbing his nose. I did, yeah. Did you do some nose candy? I did. That's why I'm really kind of like fucking hyper. This is so good. Um, do you want to hit some of the shit? No. What about, good. But Marty, what about you? Hello. Oh, see, by film, The Irishman. It's actually called I Heard You Paint Horses. <laughs> it, it's, it's, um, it's out right now. Oh my God, I'm seeing it tomorrow night. Oh, oh yeah, we're, we're so exciting. Together. Yeah, it's exciting. So we're going to hold hands. I think, um, well, yeah, especially during the scary I'd parts. I'd like to take you to a screening, screening of, of The, the Irishman. Irishman all by myself. Yeah. Uh, I'm re- someone else. I'm really excited to see, uh, yeah. Don't th- Isn't the young Carrie Fisher in it again at the very end? And then she says, like, hope. She says, Irishman. Irishman. <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, war sucks. War f- Peace. Yeah, Might drop. Well, movies certainly can't be about everything. Um, you know, I, I like the film a lot more. I think that the most powerful thing it has to say is about a relationship between two people. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I think to elevate it beyond that is to take away from its like inherent simplicity that is quite beautiful. Mm. And I think also there's something that we're ignoring is that the film is also, is also about two damaged egos. Um, like not just damaged psyches, but damaged egos. And, yeah. you know, one thing that's interesting is that you get one thing that I, I, I've thought about while watching the film is how we are give definitely given an insight into Joaquin Phoenix's post or pre life or Freddie Quell mm-hmm. as played by Joaquin Phoenix's life before joining the cause. Yeah. And we get no insight Lancaster into Dodd. Lancaster yeah. Dodds. And I, I think it's interesting. So I read very, very briefly about L. Ron Hubbard mm-hmm. before we recorded. And, and I, one thing that I noted is that is, his father yeah. was in the air force. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a military thing going but on. He yeah. never, joined them but he had a paramilitary boat fleet Mm -hmm. um and i just think it's an interesting there's there's something interesting about the film dealing with 
sort of like one person's lived experience and like the challenge and trauma of that juxtaposed mm-hmm. against a life of someone who's kind of like found a way to bullshit everyone into yeah. giving them giving him what what he wants you yeah know? And it's just very interesting in that regard by um, the way like what, what's all the stack of like dianetics doing here there's like 15 or 20 copies of the book well we'll talk about it after okay, right. um but are you are you stressed <laughs> a little bit yeah i mean who isn't yeah do you want to what's this what, yeah quick, what's this machine you got yeah, it's like do <laughs> i hold like, do on to these like um the processing scene is really interesting yes, because yeah. i think you know um one thing that i think is an interesting thing to talk about with this movie is the the jerking off scene? We already talked about that. The jerking <laughs> I love talking about that scene, bro. No, the fact that, um, you know, we talked about with John Cassavetes, how sometimes some of the, some of the, they sometimes those movies feel like acting exercises. Yeah, yeah. And the processing scene is literally an acting exercise. Right. Like if you go to acting school and you learn the Sanford Meisner stuff, mm-hmm. you do this activity, I forget the name of it, where you, um, someone says something and then you repeat it mm-hmm. and then you keep repeating it and you, and then the idea is that it, it gets to a point where you get past the performance and you're mm-hmm. genuinely reacting to one mm-hmm. another. And like that scene is interesting because it's so exquisitely acted. Yeah. It's beautifully it's great. acted. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think they sort of like do this kind of incredible job of, of playing off each other. But I remember feeling that the scene was quite indulgent. Mm-hmm. Because the I first like, time you saw it or even really now? Really good actors doing really good acting. Yeah. Maybe a little bit less now, but I, I also still struggle with it's like, it does have something to say. It's it's good. It's really good, and especially the when it when it's just a long take on Joaquin Phoenix's yeah, yeah. emotions. But and his face, his gnarled face. I don't know. Again, it's like, is it possible that the movie could say what it has to say in less time? Because it's a long film. It's a long film. Yeah, it's funny though. I was watching it and I was thinking about those scenes, and I was like, because well, there's a couple of processing scenes, but I kept thinking like, man, like I would really love to see like a PT Anderson Freud film. <laughs> like he should have done a Dangerous Method, not Cronenberg. Oh, I like the Dangerous Method though. I, I have to go. Well, I mean, like the accents kind of like killed me. Whatever, it's yeah. all intentional. He knows what he's doing. Um, I mean, I think you're supposed to be like at a remove i think you're supposed yeah. to that movie's meant to make you feel that way it's funny though because i know like scientologists hate um psychoanalysis and i was like it seems like it's the same fucking I mean, obviously same obviously there's movie. like there's aliens in scientology and whatnot and well, not in psychoanalysis on, i think that maybe let me hang on here's a copy <laughs> of uh, battlefield earth oh th- oh yeah yeah and then uh, no, no, I, i've seen the film a couple of times yeah do you like the movie? Oh my god, it's great. love it! You've seen so, my Battlefield Earth tattoos, right? It's on your butt. It's on your butt. <laughs> on my butt. Let's um take this moment where we've talked about acting exercises to talk about Joaquin Phoenix oh, so and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. I love that scene also when during the processing where he says to him, he's like, "And when I got on stage, can you introduce me as Joker?" Remember that scene? That was really good. You were like, can I introduce you as the master? <laughs> um, I think we've all come to take for granted so how, I should listen how, to our own episodes. how good of an actor Joaquin Phoenix is. And I think that he was good before this film, obviously, but like I think this film like cements him. Yeah. Well, this pantheon. is also right after that. The entire weirdness of I'm still here. That's what it's yes. called, right? I'm still here. Uh, that's true. It was it was soon. This was one of his first return kind of yeah. roles. So I, I remember like uh, I read an interview with like um, P.T. Anderson and he said like him and Philip Seymour Hoffman were talking about like who they could possibly get. And you know, like the, they were thinking about Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Jeremy Renner actually was originally cast in yeah. the movie and then the funding, Megan Ellison's funding fell out or oh something. God, so, and, or maybe that was before Anna. Such a great move. Too be a very different movie. It would be a very different movie. Yeah. So it'd be weird because Freddie Quell would have like a country album yeah. in the movie. <laughs> he'd be like, "Can I just play some guitar?" And you'd be like, "Ugh, why do we like cast fine, Jeremy Renner?" Fine. Why does Freddie Quell have an app? Just give him give him one scene. You know that Jeremy Renner has an app, right? He used to have an app. Yeah. yeah so, and but I, you, I crashed. I, you, I crashed. How it. much did you spend on it? Uh, I mean, like twenty five thousand. <laughs> Yeah, but I had like a lot of stars. You were like a, the scene. I, I was like 158. <laughs> nice, I was like nice, a Renner nice. head. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what that means. Yeah, I was I was up there. I was up there. But now nice. I'll be hearing it off for the rest of my life. Um, it would have been a totally different movie. But yeah, they were. I read an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson where he said that he was talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman about possibly getting Phoenix, and it was right after that whole kind of like fiasco of like that movie and like the David Letterman stuff and the yeah, like the, the rap career. <laughs> Yeah, in retrospect, it's not a good look, especially with the Casey Affleck, the stuff that came out. Yeah, of yeah, Affleck but his physicality in, in, this like, in this film is fucking incredible. Yeah, the costumes are amazing. 
the way he inhabits them is really yeah. great. And his, I like how I appreciate how he spends, he's sort of wound up and tight at the beginning. Totally. And over the course of the film, he loosens up a little bit. Yeah. There's um, this great moment too, with like, just like, let's like just subtle touches where like he's walking, he's like dressed in a suit and he's like pulling at his collar and he's yeah. just kind of like, obviously completely, utterly he's uncomfortable. In, he's incredibly present in this moment. Um, there's a scene where they have the Phoenix summit mm-hmm. where Phil Hoffman is giving a speech at Lancaster Dodd. Phil Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd is giving a speech and it keeps cutting to Freddie Quell and mm-hmm. he's talking about, you know, what people need in life and man and what man is. And the split saber. The split saber. Yeah. So we published a book um, called the split that saber. That is a very, very significant scene to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe the most significant scene in the movie because after that he sort of has the altercation with uh, Kevin Conroy and then chooses yeah, to yeah, leave. Yeah. yeah. And I, I sort of wonder what the significance, why that's the scene that sort of breaks his back in terms of his commitment to the, to the mm-hmm. cause. And I'm not sure what it might be. Yeah. I will say that I'm glad you said that. I will say that I think one thing seeing it again is yeah. When he does like flee, when he tries to flee from Philip Seymour Hoffman, I felt like the, um, the cause of the justification for that wasn't yeah. quite there. So there's a beautiful scene where like they go out to the desert and they like oh do my this God, kind of it's like beautiful. It's where yeah. I fell asleep the other times I saw this movie, <laughs> and, which is crazy. So they do like some now. kind of exercise where they pick a point and they drive towards it. And they it. drive to it on, on a motorbike. Yeah. And Freddie, when it's Freddie's turn, he drives and he keeps going and he doesn't come back and he goes, mm. go, he goes back looking for Doris and he finds out that Doris has been married and she has kids. There's an argument to be made that that doesn't happen. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about yeah. it from the moment he I'm bites glad you, away. I'm glad you said that too because it abruptly cuts to him in the theater and he looks like he's sleeping. Yeah, and he's having a dream. Right. And he says in my dream, you because he gets a phone call yeah. from Lancaster Dodd. Yeah, and he says like in my dream. Yeah, totally. But, but later he says that was a dream. So we know that was a dream. But there's nothing mm-hmm. in the film. This is what's interesting about that because there's nothing in the film that denotes that visually except that it's absurd that he'd get a phone call in a movie theater from yeah. Lancaster Dodd and because he says like how'd you find me and he says like we're connected right but that also implies that maybe there's other things in the film that right. are a dream and it could be some of the beach stuff it could be when Manchester at the end that could mm-hmm. be a dream him going to England entirely could be a dream the entire movie could be a dream Whoa. which I think is so boring yeah of course it's not <laughs> But um, <laughs> it's symbolic, right? right? That's the thing. Like, a, like the moments when the film is at its best, like the moments take on like a symbolic resonance. Should we talk about Phil Hoffman? We should. Let's do it. This is a uh, amazing, a stellar performance. I think it's like the probably the performance he'll be uh, in, like a career of memorable performances. Mm-hmm. Um, Was he nominated for this? Yes, I think so. Or I don't know, wrongfully or rightfully so. This is, I think, what he'll be remembered for. It's, um, it is the ultimate. It's weird because in my mind, I remembered it as being a really alpha performance, but it's not. It's a little beta, a little alpha. It's got yeah, like a, a little bit of a, of a, of a twist on it. Well, because because again, he's so dependent on both like his wife and on um, Freddie. Yes. And they are, and also uh, like on alcohol as well. Like he is again, like this, like damaged, very fragile yes. individual. And he obviously hides that behind this veneer of like being the master, the titular master. But yeah, he's very much like a very, um, in many respects, a very weak figure. And he yes. knows it too. And that's why, again, like when he's challenged, he totally fucking flips out. Um, I want to also comment that it's an exceptionally charismatic performance mm-hmm. and you can see threads of every other performance in it. Um, and I was just noting while you were talking about there, I noted that it was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Actor, Joaquin Phoenix. Best Supporting Actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Best Supporting Actress, Amy Adams. All very deserving. All very deserving, yeah. Um, but I think... Uh, best Screenplay, L. Ron Hubbard. What? what? But I think... Um, deservedly so he's just he's just so charismatic you you believe him even when you think he's full of shit like he has so much conviction and like yeah there's the playfulness of like even some of the along came Polly stuff like you can sort of see it in the kind of the way it's crazy that the same guy that played the guy shooting hoops and and uh, along make it rain this part but also like there's a playfulness. There's a playfulness from the other performances, a playfulness from Twister. There's a playfulness yeah. that, that comes over to this. There's the fact that he's so warm. 
He is. And like yes. loving. He loves him. He loves him. And like yeah. that feels to me like Phil Parma yeah. from Magnolia. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we intentionally set off being like, we're not going to spend, we're not going to talk about five Paul Thomas Anderson movies. But I think there's like a whole season built around talking about Phil Hoffman yeah, and Paul Thomas Anderson's yeah, yeah. career, um, but, or working professional relationship. Uh, because I think you can see so much of his earlier work with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson comes yeah. in this performance. It's just interesting too, because earlier you said, you mentioned like, um, I th- you mentioned Steven Spielberg like in passing, I think like in a joking kind of manner, but it's interesting also to think about how like Paul Thomas Anderson is also very much in- invested in the idea of family and yes. of like the relationship between like films are about fathers them. and sons. Yeah. So uh, much like the Fast and the Furious films, right? Sure. Like these films are also very much like about family. I've only seen one. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure they're about family. Yeah. <laughs> the family of cars. Um, <laughs> no, that's cars. Yeah, that's cars maybe. Um, but it's interesting again to think about like, so Lancaster Dodd obviously and Freddie both as like potentially lovers, but also clearly as like father and son. Um, yes. And the same thing also with like obviously Daniel Plainview, Plainview and obviously his like... H.W. Plainview. Yeah. This is my son and partner, H.W. Plainview. And his sons, right? Um, and to think about obviously like in Boogie Nights, Burr Lancaster, Burr Reynolds, Burr Lancaster in Boogie Nights would have been amazing. And um, Heart 8, which you've never fucking seen, never is, fucking about seen. A, is about a surrogate father yeah. and his son. So, I mean, it's also interesting. Well, don't say yeah so confidently if you haven't no, fucking no, no, seen no, the course. movie. Yeah, yeah, no, no, of course. I was also thinking about uh, Jason, um, I was talking about uh, Magnolia with uh, Jason um, Robards and, and Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. So, the those themes and the kind of the examination of like fathers and sons is a th- common theme in a lot of yes. his films. And I think f- it's, you know, I, what I'm so blown away by is the, is the dichotomy of, or the, di- the dichotomy in the Phelps Phil Hoffman performance. And that a great example is the scene when the, when the, the journalist kind of confronts him about his cult yeah, yeah. and he, you both feel bad for him and also are like, disgusted by the way he speaks to this guy he's so insecure and yet like lovable there's um a scene in the film where rami malik and his uh well so lancaster's wife lancaster dodd's wife and daughter and husband her the daughter's husband wow (laughs) i hope you all got (laughs) his (laughs) son-in-law his son-in-law try to convince him that freddie is bad yeah and he sort of politely puts down his knife and fork and says like, if we can't help him, what are we doing? Then what are we doing? And like, you believe him, you absolutely believe him. And the next scene. Yes. Is one of the best scenes in the film, which is the scene when, so like you see it, um, uh, Freddie's walk into the house very slowly and Lancaster sees him and he comes like down the steps and like embrace and then yeah. they start like playfully start wrestling, wrestling yeah. on, the, on the lawn and then Amy Adams character comes down and she's like what the fuck are you guys like she doesn't yeah. say anything but like the looks like what are you guys doing and then they spend a like tw- uh, there's like a long montage of him being sort of like like destroyed uh, by they break him down to, to build him back up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And those are great moments too, because again, like it, it captures his um, like sense of being imprisoned, right? He's like yes. running back and forth, and like this is a, this is a window, this is a wall, like this is a window, this is a wall, and he's like, and it's, yeah, he's like totally trapped. Yes, it's just such a magnetic, beautiful performance, and like, you know, they didn't do another movie together, which is sad. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, um, but I, I think. You know, uh, it's a rich it's a rich performance with a lot of layer and a lot of meaning. And yeah, you can see some of the Mission Impossible three sort mm. of intensity in this. And you know, one thing I think that has come through with every single film that we've talked about is there's like a it's not a goodness or a warmth. Maybe it's a warmth, but there's like this bright center at the center. There's a mm. brightness at the center of this guy. That yeah. Like, he never kind of turned off, which makes films like Love Lisa so powerful because you feel so deeply for him. Um, and like, you know, it's in a way it's easy to make a film where you're sympathetic towards a guy who loses his wife, but it's another thing entirely to like still be accepting of him when he is like huffing gasoline and like, you know, like he makes it all very believable because it all just, it's just like, it's just like this richness at the center of a person. Yeah, that, yeah. 
I think warmth is a good way to describe it. And yeah. warmth, not in like a, like a very cheap, superficial way, but in the sense that there's a certain kind of gravity there. There's a certain kind of humaneness. And this is going to come back in a really interesting way when we talk about the last film, which dun, is The Most dun, Wanted dun. Man, mm-hmm. which is about a sort of dogged, dogged, um, seek German secret agent named Gunther mm-hmm. that, uh, is like I think his last film to come out, the first film to come out after he passed away, but like his last one of his last on screen performances. Um and there's like a lot it's it's sad because the that I don't feel that the warmth is there in that performance. Yeah. And I was having a conversation with some um someone who worked today about uh you know the whole Joaquin Phoenix Joker thing and like I don't buy I don't entirely buy into the idea that like, I think, I think most actors don't get so committed to a role that I think there's a lot of tabloidy stuff. And like Heath Ledger got so committed to his role in the dark Knight that it killed. Yeah. yeah. I found that stuff really insulting. And like, it's a way to sell newspapers a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that like mental health stuff isn't real. And like, you're not affected by what you do, but like it's cheap. It's cheap. It's a cheap like way to talk about this stuff. Um, but it is interesting to think about this, you know, not to draw too long, too close of a parallel between like what we're going to see in a most wanted man and life, because that's insulting. But there's something in all of these movies that seems to be like the core of this guy. And it's a kind of warmth and it's, it's like we're getting close to the end. And that means we have yeah. to kind of get close Sports to thinking sad. about like, sad. to thinking about the end. Yeah. For this, like, yeah kind of great American, the great American actor of his generation. Um, I mean, Probably. maybe, I mean, but I mean, you know, Adam Sandler's around. It's hard to kind of compare. Hey, Hey, you saying. make that joke without having seen uncut gems. <laughs> uh, when Sandler wants to, he could bring He's it. incredible. He's yeah. incredible. But also, I mean, he does he suck in uncut so many ways. Uncut gems. Also, he's, Sandler he's a Republican. Sucks. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like totally. His politics are really shitty. Yeah. They're shitty. Yeah. But uh, that's that's for another podcast. Um, At another time, in another this life. This was great. No, I have to say though, I, I really Liam, remember, if you leave, and I meet you in another lifetime, we will be enemies. That's <laughs> we'll be sworn. I fucking amazing. He says it. You will be my. It's so sad. And then he looks him in the eyes and he says, "Oh, those Teddy Grams. Oh, those Teddy Grams. Crispy country. What the fuck is that? That's a song he sings to him, isn't it? No, it's. Oh yeah, I think that's he the uh, email the, my heart the, by Britney Spears. <laughs> wow, what a good callback! Callback. Did I episode. cut that out of that episode from episode seven. It's a long time ago of Uberbusters um, season well, one. That's Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. It's a recommended film. It's it's going to make me go back and watch Inherent Vice yeah. this weekend. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos, and this was Uvra Busters. You did it. Ah! <laughs>